Our sermon today comes from Psalm 130. As we've been going through the Psalms this summer, we're coming to this one, which is a specific type of lament. This one is called a penitential psalm of lament because it focuses not so much on the external suffering that comes to us, but the suffering that we ourselves have caused by our own sin. But before we look at this psalm that moves from the depths of sin to really the heights of God's grace, let's remember the, that overarching worldview that is behind this psalm. Uh, if we could pull up those slides, I'll read the questions if you'll read the answers. First of all, who is the Lord? God. Of steadfast love and justice. What does He do? demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. Uh, as always, I'm indebted to Jay Sklar from Covenant Seminary for these questions and answers that help summarize how the psalm writers understood the Lord and the Lord's work in the world. In them, you can see the, the lofty, you can see how the lofty hope of his blessing stands in sharp contrast to a fearful expectation of his justice. But what does a person do if they see themselves as a rebel against the Lord? What do I say when I sense not the pleasure of God, but his heavy hand on me? What do we say when we feel overwhelmed by a sense that my heart and my life are deeply wrong in God's sight? The answer is heard in Psalm 130. Let's pray as we come together to this psalm that for the past 3,000 years has put courage into the hearts of God, God's people because the song that begins in the depths does not remain there. It ascends to a confident hope built not on the crumbling foundation of self-improvement, but on the sure and steady character of God himself. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we do call out to you, asking as those who belong to the Lord Jesus that your spirit would so move in our hearts now that we would see ourselves clearly, see our constant need of your grace, but that we would cry out to you in our need and see you in your beauty and your sufficiency for us. We would cling to Christ our Lord as he pulls us out of the depths. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The ark of this psalm is going to be our simple outline today. We're simply going to follow the verses as they progress unfailingly upward. That's fitting for a song of ascents, of course. This is originally a pilgrim's song sung by worshipers on their way up to Jerusalem. But while their journey's in promised joy and peace with God and with each other, That's not where this song begins. Look at verses 1 through 3. This song begins with a cry, an anguished shout coming from the depths. Now there are depths of suffering in a broken world. There are the depths of pain that are caused by the sin of others against us. But what are these depths? Consider this, who, who is it that the Israelites are going up to Jerusalem to meet? To whom are they drawing near? They are walking together toward the Lord, to Yahweh, their covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They know him. They know that he is the God of steadfast love because they have seen his steadfast love expressed again and again and again throughout their nation's story. Being at peace with him, being in his presence is like heaven itself. But if they have seen his steadfast love, they have also seen more. They saw his thunderous warnings, the lightning flashing at Mount Sinai, and the terrifying word that if anyone, man or beast, if anyone touches the mountain of God, death is the consequence. In their story, they've seen fire go out from his presence, consuming two sons of Aaron who presumed to approach the Lord on their own terms. They know his law, his instructions about how life with him, how life with each other is supposed to work best. And they also know that they have broken it all. In other words, they've seen that the Lord is a God of steadfast love and that he is also a God of justice. He's so pure, so wholly other than them that he must be separate from sinners whose hearts and whose lives are inclined to love self more than him. And if he must be separate 
They see that the distance between God and themselves is staggering. The psalmist cries from the depths because against Uh, the Lord, he sees himself clearly. In the light of the Lord, he sees himself clearly. Against the heights of God's righteousness, he sees the deep wrongness in his own heart and in his own life. We know that from verse 3. Look there, where he confesses all people to be in the same position before God. It's no good comparing ourselves to each other because if the Lord marked iniquity, that is, if the Lord remembers against us, all the ways that we fail to love him and love other people perfectly, then each of us would fall before him. And that terrifying idea of the Lord remembering his sin against him, it leaves him not only sensing his distance from God in the depths of isolation and despair, but he also senses his helplessness there. His helplessness to change his condition. And that's what drives his pleas for mercy. Mercy, because what is clear, one pastor writes, is that self-help is no answer to the depths of distress, however useful it may be in the shallows of self-pity. He pleads for mercy. Because as the psalmist elsewhere confesses, my iniquities have gone over my head. He knows that he will remain in the depths until the Lord helps him. I had a lot of adventures when I lived in Uganda. I I would battle rats each night with a homemade spear as they would keep me up in my room every night. I I got to drive myself on the left side of the road through the dusty evening traffic jams of the capital city. One of my favorite adventures, though, was whitewater rafting on the Nile River. Now, if you don't know much about rafting, Uh, There is a one to six scale telling you how big a river's rapids are. A class one rapid is basically just moving water, maybe a couple of bumps here or there. Niagara Falls is a class six. You might survive if you run it, but you'd have to be a little off maybe to even try it. Now, I'm not sure what it says about me, but I rafted a section of the Nile that was all class four and five rapids. It was eight hours on the water of 10-foot waves and rapids that were lasting 50 yards at a time. The power of that river was overwhelming. We'd go down into the trough of a wave and we would actually be looking up at the wall of water that we were supposed to crest. And we'd get up to the top of it and for an exhilarating moment we would just sit there in our boat on the top of the wave, surfing. But then, the hydraulics would pull our boat backwards, flipping us out into the hole. Three times in class five water, our boat was flipped over, and each time the water would push our bodies beneath the waves, tumbling head over heels. You felt like a rag doll just being thrown around under the water. Now, our life jackets worked. We'd pop up for about half a breath, and then it was back down again. And the next time we saw the surface, 
we would be probably 50 yards away from our boat with the current quickly taking us further away. I don't care who you are. You are not strong enough to fight that water. And that powerlessness against water that's so deep and so strong, it's a scary feeling knowing that you can't make it back to the boat on your own. You're waiting while the dark waters of the Nile just churn over your head. I think a similar helpless feeling, that overwhelmed feeling is what provokes the psalmist cry in the opening of this psalm. He cries out from the depths. And I wonder, is that familiar to you? Have you felt the brief exhilaration of sin only to find yourself underwater a moment later? If not, you may not yet know how far from God you actually are. Maybe you compare yourself to others and you think you must be close to God because you've got to be closer to Him than that guy or that woman. The psalm reminds us, though, that comparative righteousness against other sinners is no righteousness at all. But if you do know that overwhelming feeling that comes from knowing the depths of your sin, if you know that your sins have gone over your head and that you're powerless to help yourself, then can you see that that's actually a blessing from God? To know where you are is a good thing. Because once you know you're in the depths, you can follow the psalmist example. You too can cry out to the only one who can help. The only help that we had back in the river was this group of kayakers who went down with us. The rafting company actually paid them to pluck us out of the water and get us back safely to the raft. We would pop up out of the water and they would laugh at us because our eyes were about this big around. And they would just paddle over to us and they would say, just grab on to the back of my boat. And you'd kind of wrap your legs up around the boat and hold on like this. You were kind of like, you know how turtles sit on logs when they're sunning? You were kind of the opposite of that because you were under the boat. But they would, all we had to do was hold on to them. And I think in the same way, the psalmist knows here that there is one true hope for people who are in the depths. You hear him in verse 1. I cry to you, O Lord. When we find ourselves in the depths, there are so many things that promise relief, that promise rescue. For religious people, we can grasp at doing better to get us out of the depths. We can try harder to be very good, to uh, trying to claw our way back up out of the depths. But it's like trying to stand up in the middle of a deep river. An irreligious person may not feel the need for this at all. Glancing at their life may reveal some small imperfections, but they're happy with themselves overall. And besides, who is anyone else to tell me that I'm not okay? But if anyone truly measures themselves against the Lord and finds themselves wanting, we hear the good news here. That our Lord, our God, is more than just a mirror showing us how lacking we are. 
He is also the source of our hope. The reason why the psalmist cries and why we ourselves must cry to the Lord alone is seen beginning in verse 4. Against our fears, against our sin is this truth that sparks hope and puts courage even into the weakest heart. It's the truth that marks really the turning point in this psalm that begins leading upward, setting the singer on the road to the heights of joy and peace. In our helplessness, in the depths, we cling to the Lord because with Him there is forgiveness. With Him there is forgiveness. That is the psalmist confidence because the Lord has revealed Himself to His people as this kind of God. This is part of His gracious Character. It's what the Lord revealed to Moses when the Lord made His glory pass before Moses on the mountain. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And what God revealed to His people then about His character, He promised and pictured for them in the sacrifices that He provided for them. As God's people in the Exodus trembled before Mount Sinai, hearing the utterances of God as He made His law known, they saw that they could not live up to that, that they would die in the presence of such a God. And yet immediately God gives makes provision for them, gives them the sacrifices. The sacrifice of the, Old, of the Old Testament through which an unholy people could live in the presence of a holy God. God would accept a valuable substitute to die in the place of His people so that God and His people could remain together so that God's people could be pulled up out of the depths of their own sin and be restored to life with Him. So it's for good reason that the psalmist says that with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. But if he had such confidence, you and I have better. Because although he had God's word promising forgiveness, we, here on this side of the cross, we have seen Christ, God's final word poured out for our sake. His blood shed for our forgiveness. The psalmist had the old sacrifice, but Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain once for all time. The psalmist saw the shadows of Christ in the old covenant, but the light of Jesus has dawned on us and showing us himself and his grace, his love. He drives out our fear. It's by faith in Jesus that we hear God's promise of complete forgiveness that was accomplished not by our doing better, but by Jesus doing it all on the cross. In the person of our Lord Jesus, we see 
A God who would go to such lengths, that a God who would go to such lengths to save sinners is proof that he is the God of steadfast love and justice. In the cross of Jesus, we see his justice displayed completely, totally, but we also see there his love for sinners. And that is why God says to us that when we call upon him in the depths, there is forgiveness. He is assuring us of his love because he knows that when we are in the depths, we are most tempted to doubt it. Resting in that promise of forgiveness, though, we see that it leads to something else. Look again at verse 4. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that, or in order that, you may be feared. That's our response to this forgiveness that God offers to us. It's this, we return His grace with fear. Now, we're not talking about the kind of fear that makes us sink back into the depths again. No, here, fear means reverence. A reverence that actually implies a relationship. Because God has reconciled you to Himself through the death of His perfect sacrifice, His Son, the appearance of God's grace to us in forgiveness, it actually restores us to a proper reverence of the Lord. It's a kind of worship-filled awe that's evidenced by a renewed desire to please Him more than we please ourselves. When my wife forgives me for the wrong that I've done to her, she doesn't, it doesn't make me want to say, oh, I got away with that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that again because obviously she's forgiving. No. What does it mean when a person extends grace to you? Do you want to keep wronging them? No, you want to please them. And in the same way, God's forgiveness of us, that's fully expressed to us in the person of Jesus, it moves us to want to, to fear Him, to give to Him that proper respect that He's due, to seek to please Him instead of pleasing ourselves. His grace actually trains us to pursue new obedience to Him. And so we can, we can return to His law, not as a way of saving ourselves, not as a way of making ourselves right in His sight, but we can return to the law as a rule of life, as a guide to help us walk through this world in a way that is pleasing to God, in a way that is good for us, to, in a way that's good that we live together in these ways that are beautiful and others-focused. Because when we see and enjoy God's beauty, enjoy His goodness, and enjoy His steadfast love, when we are captured by Him and His redeeming grace, we cease to be worshipers of self, that chief sin that led us into the depths in the first place. We cease to be worshipers of self, and we truly become worshipers of God. That is the purpose of your forgiveness. 
so that we could stop making so much of ourselves and begin making much of God. That the psalmist fear here is an awe-filled reverential love is actually confirmed in the next verses. Because here we see he's not merely trying to escape punishment. He is longing for the Lord himself. Look at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. When we hear, when we believe in the steadfast love of God and we trust that He hears us when we cry, that He has forgiven us all for Jesus' sake, something begins to happen to the way that we view our time in the depths. For certain, our time there while we wait may be painful. We may still feel a long way off. We may still have some suffering to endure, but... The love of God in Christ produces a hope in us. And we can endure anything so long as we have hope. In the year 1830, on the night preceding the 1st of August, July, uh, I'm sorry, on the night preceding the 1st of August, th that was the day... There, some enslaved persons of a certain West Indian colony. It was the day they were to possess the freedom that were promised to them. And on that long night of July 31st, the, before that day of their promised freedom, we are told that many of those people never went to bed at all. Thousands and tens of thousands gathered themselves together in places of worship, engaging in devotional duties and singing praises to God, waiting for the first streaks of light of the morning of that day in which they were to be made free. In fact, some of their number were sent up into the hills from which they might actually see better the first light of the coming day and by a signal make known to their brothers down in the valley the dawn of the day that was to make them men. And no longer as they had been considered to that point mere goods and property, but men restored to the dignity that God had created them to, men with souls that God had created to live forever, how eagerly must those watchmen have watched for the morning? Until August 1st, those men and women had been enslaved persons. They, those children were not their own. They worked when they were told to work. They couldn't call anything their own. And they could be torn from their families at a moment's notice. To a certain extent, their entire life, up to July 31st, had been a life lived in the depths. Now imagine the mood of the people on July 31st, if they had not been told that the very next day they would see their freedom, would there have been so many loud praises to God welling up from their worship places? Would men have been sent to the hills that night to see the first streak of sunlight? No, of course not. 
They acted the way that they did because there was a word that had come to them that gave them hope and helped them to endure those last few hours of being enslaved to men. And in the same way, this word tells us that our freedom has come and is still coming. Christ has already released us from bondage to sin so that the scriptures say we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But the promise of God goes further. He ensures us that there will come a day when He frees us from these bodies in which sin still lives. And He promises to give us a restored body, a glorified body like His own. And on that day, you who belong to Christ, you who are in Christ Jesus, will be delivered from all the sorrow and toil and suffering that this broken world heaps upon you and that you heap upon yourself. And we're assured by the Word of God that His going forth is as sure as the dawn itself and that He is coming with His reward. Our Lord Himself says, Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you who mourn over your sin, take heart. You who grieve over your wandering heart, look again to Christ and be comforted. His word assures you that he will act. His word assures us of his steadfast love toward his children. His word assures us that his justice has been satisfied. And, and so for us today, one pastor reminds us that the night may seem endless, but morning is certain, and it's time determined. And your Savior Himself says, surely I am coming soon. To this point, we talk mostly about how the steadfast love of God that's shown to us in Christ affects us personally. And while it's important for us to talk about our personal relationship with Christ, it's easy to forget sometimes that God has a larger purpose in mind when He brings about our salvation. He is redeeming a people for Himself, a body of believers who would live together for the glory of its head, Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to see in, here in this psalm that once the psalmist's heart was refreshed by the forgiveness for the grace that is His in the Lord. Once his future hope was assured by the promises of God, what does the psalmist do? He turns his attention away from himself and toward his brothers and sisters. He knows that they themselves may be in the depths. They themselves may stand in need of a renewed hope in the steadfast love of God. And so he says in verses 7 and 8, O oh, Israel! O people of God, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Can you remember the last time when you were in the depths, sorrowful over your sin? Think about the last time you felt like you were at the bottom of the river, and the last time you were tempted to doubt the love of God. And now think, 
Think about who was with you in the midst of that river. Jesus was with me, you might say. And of course, you're right. That's true. But, but who else? I remember a time when I felt like I was in the depths. It was the summer of 2004, and I was overseeing Ridge Haven's summer camp program. One of the thousand things that I was responsible for was actually the care of the counselors, helping them with the tough summer of ministry that they were going through, encouraging them in their own spiritual walk, helping them learn how to encourage others in their relationship with Christ. And I remember that about halfway through the summer, I was a wreck. Not on the outside, but inside. I felt like I was dry as a bone, but drowning at the same time. I was seeing so much of my sin, but for half of the summer, I had just been trying to fix myself. And I thought that going through the motions of spirituality would help bring me out of that dark time that I was experiencing. But by God's grace, a friend, one of my closest friends and brothers in Christ, came to work at, a camp, at the camp just for a week. Just for a week. We spent time together, and I was finally able to confess my sins and the dryness that I'd been hiding from everybody else. And after listening to me, his response to me was so full of grace and the truth of God's Word that I had forgotten to take hold of. He reminded me of these very truths that we're talking about today, that the steadfast love of God is always on His people. That sometimes God drives us into the depths by His grace to remind us of our true need of Him. He reminded me that God's promise of steadfast love means that He hears the cries of His people even in the depths and that with Him is forgiveness. That we have a hope that, we, that endures even beyond the depths. My friend pushed me toward Christ. And as he did it, he became like Christ to me. What I mean is he became the instrument Jesus used to rescue me from the depths. Christ, yes, could have easily rescued me from the depths on his own. But you know that's rarely how he chooses to work. Instead, his Holy Spirit uses God's word and uses God's people to mediate him, his work, his blessing. He uses the hands of our brothers and sisters to grab hold of us and pull us up. My friend was doing the very thing that the psalmist was doing in verses 7 and 8. He's doing the very thing that you have a privilege and a responsibility to do for each other. I want to encourage you to foster the kind of relationships with each other where you can share when you yourself are in the depths. And you can have a relationship where you yourself might be an instrument of blessing to your brothers and sisters. I want to encourage you to foster relationships where you can say to one another and hear from one another that in Christ the steadfast love of God is ours and it meets us even in the depths of our own sin. 
It's not an easy thing to do, to develop those kinds of relationships. That kind of transparency is costly. It takes energy. It takes time. But it's what we are called to as the body of Christ, to bear each other's burdens and to fulfill the law of Christ. So go to a small group and keep going. And ask someone close to you, how are you? Really, how are you? And if someone asks you that question, don't just fire back, fine. How are you? Slow down. Slow down. Think about opening up. You don't have to do it all at once, but will you take the first step? Will you believe once again that to cry out to the Lord from the depths is a cry that he hears and he loves to answer? It, really, in the end, it is striking to me how well this passage encapsulates the gospel. It, it's movement from the depths to the heights itself is a, a beautiful work of God's grace. It reminds us, as another pastor puts it, that the gospel of Jesus, it tells us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And as you today, again, for the first time or for the thousandth time, as you cry out to the Lord and you cling hold to Christ, as you receive Him and rest in Him, you can rest assured that when your plentiful redemption appears with Christ, your time in the depths will cease forever. And your time in the depths will become, in a mysterious way, actually the source of a new song of praise to our God. Because we will see Him whose nail-scarred hands drew us up out of the depths. And knowing how He carried us from the depths to the heights, we will sing of His steadfast love forever. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are the God who hears the sinner's cry. And you have provided for us a Savior, a rescuer who himself descended into the depths so that he might lift us up. Being united to Him by faith, Father, we know that we have already been lifted up out of the depths, out of the grave, and seated with Christ Himself in the heavenly places. And Father, though for a time we dwell in this place where we do not yet see the fullness of our redemption, Father, help us to turn our eyes up, to look to You, to wait on You, knowing that you are faithful and you love us deeply. You have proved that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in his name, we pray, Father, that you would continue to press us on in the faith and the hope that is in him. In his name we pray. Amen.